Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 48 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. I'm starting this episode with a quick plug. I'm hosting a masterclass on D2C and food and drink subscriptions for the grocer at the start of November with a great panel of experts, including from Simply Cook and Oddbox. I know it's going to be a very interesting discussion, lots of great insight on how to make D2C work in the wake of covid So if that's something you're looking at within your own business, I think you'll find it really useful. It's free and I'll put the registration link in the show notes. As it happens, my guest this week actually has built up a very successful D2C side to their business. I'm joined this week by Adam Sofer, who is co-founder and director of Joe and Seth's, the gourmet popcorn brand. One of the things that's really interesting about Joe and Seth's is that they do a mind-bogglingly large number of flavours. It's about 80, as Adam tells me. And they were actually looking to trim that portfolio before the pandemic to make the range a bit more manageable. But then COVID happened. And actually what they found is that having that variety and breadth ended up working really well for them in D2C because it gave them that point of difference and excitement. And because of Joe and Seth's operational model, and particularly the fact that they don't outsource their manufacturing, they've been able to ride that wave and make this incredibly broad range work for them. And that's just one of the many things I talk to Adam about. We talk about health and what it's like being an indulgent brand in the era of HFSS. Adam's got some really interesting thoughts on that. The launch of an exciting new collaboration with the James Bond film franchise that they've just announced, and why Adam loves retail tech and is excited about that new Tesco checkout free store. So all of that is coming up in a moment, but first let me bring you up to speed on some of the big food and grocery retail stories this week. I've already mentioned Tesco's checkout free store, but that is one of the big stories this week. We'll come back to that in the discussion with Adam in a moment. Tesco has opened its first checkout free store. It's called GetGo. It's in Holborn in London. And shoppers are basically able to check into the store, pick up products, and then leave without scanning products or using an in-store till. Very much like those Amazon Fresh checkout free stores we're already familiar with. The UK has agreed a free trade deal with New Zealand, which will see tariffs removed from a range of goods. The government said the deal will cut costs for UK exporters, but the National Farmers Union has raised concerns it will actually open the doors to lots more food imports, which could hurt UK farmers and lower standards. With COP26 just around the corner, the UK government also published its strategy for achieving net zero. The strategy contains policies to support low-carbon farming, 
accelerating food waste collection for all households and a new investment fund to support agricultural innovation. It doesn't address dietary changes, which has raised some eyebrows, particularly because there were reports that proposals around reducing meat consumption were initially included, but later deleted. Morrison's shareholders approved its £7 billion takeover by US private equity group Clayton de Billier and Rice. The deal now has to be okayed by a court next week, which is a formality, and then the new owners take charge of Morrison's on the 27th of October. Unilever became the latest FMCG giant to warn about food inflation. The company said it's having to raise prices on its products to cope with elevated levels of cost inflation. It made the announcement while reporting its latest quarterly financial results and said it was expecting inflation to continue into next year. The retail recruitment drive for the festive season is now in full swing. Asda this week announced it was looking to recruit 15,000 temporary Christmas staff. This includes 1,500 home delivery drivers. M&S is also recruiting. It's looking for 12,000 seasonal staff to work in stores from early December. Meanwhile, Sainsbury's has already announced its biggest ever seasonal recruitment push. A while ago, it said it was looking to fill 22,000 roles this year. Gorillas, the Berlin-based rapid grocery delivery platform that's also operating in the UK, has raised a billion dollars in a new funding round, which now values the business at $2.1 billion. The deal has been held as a sign that investor interest in the rapid delivery sector is showing no sign of slowing down. Pret is going head-to-head with Costa in the coffee vending market. It's trialing self-service coffee-to-go stations called Pret Express, which can make 21 different drinks recipes and take cashless payments. And in another product first, Lindt is moving into hot chocolate for the first time. The Swiss confectionery company has launched a luxury hot chocolate powder which is expected to compete with Cadbury's hot chocolate range in store. The new Lindt product costs £4 for 300 grams and has secured listings with Tesco and Ocado, among others. Those are some of the big food and grocery retail headlines this week. You can find links to everything I mentioned in the show notes and also on thepiglist.co.uk. And now, here's my conversation with Adam Safer. Adam, welcome to The Picklist. Thank you for being my guest. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting us on. Now, you are co-founder of Joe and Seth's, the gourmet popcorn brand that many listeners will be familiar with. How does one end up co-founding a gourmet popcorn brand? Just tell us a bit about how that happened. It is a bit odd, isn't it? Um, so the, the backstory to Joe and Seth's is um, we started the business in 2010. And we being myself, my dad, my mum and my brother, so proper family unit. Um, and it came from... Um, my dad, whose name is Joseph, so the brand Joe and Seth's is literally his name split into two, um, for years made us popcorn as, as when we were kids. And it, he was inspired by different popcorns he sort of tried around the world. But always, he's not a chef by training, but always thought, I'll try and make something that tastes better and uses all natural ingredients um, in my own kitchen. And over the years, you know, he had a busy sort of job and career in to- totally random electrical industry. And um, over the years, he, he 
kind of developed and played with different recipes and, and, and creating popcorn using a totally different way to how popcorn traditionally was made. And then in 2010, he'd been retired a few years. I was bored in the job that I was doing in the career. My mum had been a stay-at-home mum and my brother had just graduated. And we thought, well, let's, let's take these recipes that my dad had made and take them to a food show, come up with a brand um, and some packaging and see what people think of it. Um, and we turned up at a food show October 2000, end of October 2010, <clears throat> with a limited amount of popcorn we had made the previous day and um said oh if it goes well we'll launch and if we won't we won't and by the end of the second day of the three-day show we sold out and um and there was a huge buzz about the kind of different flavors and you know, salted caramel popcorn almond popcorn we did a, we had a um, ghost cheese and black pepper which at the time popcorn was there wasn't a popcorn category at all was so it's quite radical um and that was the beginning that was the start of joe and seth's and now yeah 11 years later we are I've been really fortunate to grow and grow our range, grow our team, grow our brand. And um, yeah, really proud of, of everything that the whole team have, have, have done. It's a fantastic story. So did you find yourselves in a position where once on day two, you realised actually we're, we're onto something, this is potentially going to work. Did you then have to do essentially like a crash course on how to work in the food industry, how to run a, a, a food company? How did you sort of get up to speed on things did you have some some guidance some people who helped you along the way or was it all self-taught um well it's really interesting I mean that at the time podcast didn't really exist um there weren't really the food industry wasn't kind of sexy the dragon's den thing had hadn't really landed I'm not even sure if it was around at that point in time um and so there wasn't really any kind of seminars that you could go to and hear from inspirational speakers or there was nothing you know today it's totally different in terms of what's out there it's brilliant um and so at the time it was really um what do we do and you get you google and you go oh, i need to do a food health and safety food course food safety course you do one of those online um because we the difference with joe and seth's is we never outsourced our manufacturing we always make it made it and make it still um, and so we had to make sure that our production was food safe and we were taking the right kind of process, put the, put the right processes in place. So we learned a lot about that. And then it was really slightly naively kind of going, well, how, how do we, um, we want to get this into Selfridges, Harrods and Harvey Nichols. These are the premium places that we saw it in at the time. And so you, you sort of email the buyer going, everyone loves our popcorn, you know, quite naive. And um, we think you would too. Can we send you some and send some? And, and eventually through persistence and, Kind of right place right time a little bit um uh you, we were lucky enough to get a listing with selfridges and yeah and over the course of the years um there's been some great people in the industry who have sort of um you know the the, the other founders are you know everyone's quite, quite giving of their time and um definitely people who have kind of coaxed us along the way and and, and points us in the right direction um uh but but a lot of it yeah has has been very much self-taught and, and and also from recruiting great people who have come in and brought some some fantastic uh, experience and ideas to the table and on that point of recruiting people and you've you've already said you know you guys have obviously grown considerably over the past 11 years can you just give us a sense of how big the brand is now how big's the team what are some of the big listings you guys have now um, so yeah, in terms of listings, we are in um, places like Waitrose and Ocado, um, Sainsbury's seasonally at the moment, um, and but but we're much stronger in non-grocery. So 
we're nationwide in most cinema groups um, uh, on airlines such as Emirates um, on board uh, where you are in fantastic hotels and bars and then we also have a huge kind of gifting side to the business as well where where you'll find our products um, in kind of all sorts of different places from John Lewis um, uh, to kind of online retailers as well so and then outside of the UK we're in 19 countries around the world now um, uh, everywhere from kind of big grocers in the US to uh, uh, huge retailers in China and, and lots in between um so the brand the brand's grown quite considerably we'll, we'll do um rough, roughly we're about eight million pound size business now um and the team because we manufacture is quite large so we're a, a group of about 65 70 people um but actually in the office our core team of office-based people so marketing sales and finance and ops is only around 20 people so um, 15 to 20 people so um it it we're, we're it feels like a very small business still in it and it because it really is um but actually as a brand we've grown quite a bit over the years and uh but but in particular our, our big pool of people is in is is in the people who make it and um pack it and warehouse it and all the good all the good fun stuff and i feel like you can't really talk to any food brand or anyone in food manufacturing at the moment and not talk about some of the shortages around recruitment and staff have you guys been affected by this how have you found recruitment and sort of incentivizing and holding on to people in the current climate it's definitely harder than it ever has been in our 11 years um and um uh, just to kind of to kind of give you an idea, we're we're based in Park Royal in Northwest London, surrounded by lots of fantastic kind of other other food manufacturers and other exciting businesses. And yeah, it's kind of got to slightly silly stage of people sort of pinching people from kind of across the road and uh, and all this sort of thing. So certainly, it kind of from an operational perspective, um, I think people in in uh, as they kind of progress through a business, are a bit more considered about their job moves. But uh, it's yeah, certainly more challenging than it ever has been. We've had a lot of you know a lot of people who, a lot of people on our team who are kind of younger who move from various parts of the UK into London to work, um, have decided that they want to move home permanently to whichever part of the country they they kind of come from. And interestingly, with the, with those with that group of people, none of them, even if you offered them a full time work from home role, wouldn't want that a lot of people still want the office interaction um and so uh yeah unfortunately that's meant that we've lost a good number of really great people um e- even even if we want you know, even offering kind of full-time work from home doesn't 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 land so i think there's been a huge amount of churn i think in, in a lot of great businesses up and down the country as people kind of reassess their life situation and where they want to live um and yeah certainly from a from a you know, lack of lorry drivers, the lack of uh, everything is starting to, has really, it's been certainly very challenging. All of it's manageable, but it's it's certainly made life a bit more challenging than it needs to be. Yeah, I can imagine. And we'll, we, I think we'll get an opportunity to touch on some of those uh, ch- industry-wide challenges when we talk to some of you, um, talk mm. about some of your articles as well. Now, I think Jiren Sevs really is known, though, if we sort of go back to, to the brand and, and the products you guys make, I think you're really known for really interesting, innovative flavours. And you mentioned this, actually, a little bit when you talked about how the brand started, that it's, you know, about offering 
flavors like a, a goat's cheese popcorn, which is sort of quite eye-catching, I think, even today. And I had a look at your website before our chat just to kind of refresh my knowledge on the range. And I thought, God, you do even more flavors than I had remembered. How much do you do? How many flavors do you do at the moment? And where do you tend to get inspirations for, for flavors from? You know what? I pro- I've lost count. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I should know the answer to that question. It's roughly 80 flavors. Um, wow. Eight zero. Eight zero. We have a lot of a lot of uh, different flavors. And, I th- and, and a lot of that comes down to um, uh, we d- so pre-COVID, we were about to do a bit of a reassessment of, of the size of that range and whether and the scale of it is quite as sensible as, as it is. And then COVID hit and our direct-to-consumer business sort of blew up. Um, and having the extended range was a huge benefit for us um, in terms of attracting people to journcess.co.uk and in terms of keeping them excited about the range and, and kind of trying different flavours and different options. So um there is a bit of tidying up there needed, but uh, actually the kind of concept of having a very large range works very well for us and operationally is something that is very manageable the way we've built the business and the processes. But in terms of inspiration, um, uh, it comes from all sorts. Originally, it was very much what was in my dad's kitchen um, and, and, and kind of his, his kind of food, food brain every time we go out for a meal thinking oh that could work really well in popcorn or, or, or not um there was and there was a good amount of kind of buyers in supermarkets or um other brand other sort of distribution requesting flavors and going wouldn't it be great if oh interesting um which has driven a good amount of development and then yeah i'd say the third kind of pillar of it has been um brand partnerships as well so for example, we've worked with some amazing brands over the years, the latest being 007, James Bond. And of course, there was only one flavour we could we could possibly do for that, which was a, a dry martini, uh, popcorn popped, not stirred. Um, <laughs> and uh, which so the, and that was, you know, it, it had to be that way or it wasn't going to be a, a successful collaboration. So I'm so interested in that. And we'll get to talk about your, your 007 collaboration in a, in a second, because I'm really interested in how that came about. But you mentioned also because of the setup and, and the way you guys work operationally, that actually having an 80 strong range is manageable, which mm. on the face of it, it seems like it would be it be impossible to handle for a small brand. Can you just give us a bit of a sense of how do you guys make that work? Do you keep everything in stock permanently and produce everything permanently, or is it much more produced to demand as and when orders come in? Um, it does. It slightly depends, but because of the way we so because we manufacture, we're able to essentially chop and change that plan. Um, fairly easily it's much easier to plan it a week out but but it can be chopped and changed quite easily um and and all of us all of the different popcorn that we have is really it's, it's almost packed to order um mm-hmm. so we'll we'll produce to a minimum forecast but we'll pack to order um and so we're never really in a, in a situation where um we don't have any popcorn a particular flavor to pack in sort of whichever format it might be um it just needs kind of converting into uh, uh, one of our jars or bags or whichever whichever it might be. So, um, and in that way, we make and, and also the way that we've designed the packaging is such that we can we don't need to hold specific packaging of every single flavor because we've had some there are some kind of generic bits to the packaging that mean that actually the unique elements are quite small and few and far between. So, 
Um, yeah, it makes it, it, it certainly makes it a bit more challenging than it needs to be, but, but it's, it's a great point of difference. Yeah, no, I can imagine. So on that point of um, some of the, the brand partnerships that, that you've entered into, and you mentioned the uh, the W07 dry martini popcorn, um, that film, of course, very famously got delayed because of COVID. Um, so was that a bit of a heart-stopping moment for you guys? How Were you sitting on lots of dry martini popcorn going, God, please just release that film? Or how, how were you affected by that? Yeah, we definitely got caught out. Um, and... Um... It was, uh, I mean, because it was, it came pretty, if, I think the original release date was April. And I think what COVID lockdowns all sort of started March mm. time. Um, uh, so we were, yeah, we had, I mean, actually it was worse than that. We had kind of popcorn on its way to retailers all over, cinemas and retailers all over Europe. So there was a lot of recalls and uh, cancelled orders, etc. But fortunate which is which in the short term with everything else going on was quite painful to to sort of deal with however what what was great was it spurred us on to we need to sell this and put even more momentum behind our director consumer kind of push at the time than than maybe we had even thought about before so um and, and we did we managed to clear it all wow and when you are looking for for brand partnerships, and, and as you said, the 007 is just the latest example. Why are those partnerships so important to you, and and how do you tend to approach selecting the right brand partner that would work with your brand? Um, why are they important? They're important because, as a smaller brand, um, we need to. Um, work with partners who are larger and able to uh, help us get our brand message out there. Mm. Um, and if, if we can find, if you can find the right partner that actually support, kind of aligns really nice with your brand and what you're trying to achieve, then it's a bit of a win-win for both brands and in particular for the smaller of the smaller of the two brands. Um, and so that's very much been our strategy over, over the years. We've done a lot of, collaborations with different different brands and um all of all of, have been my some of my favorite things to work on um but also have have really um taken our brand into a new customer demographics so for example our collaboration with Brewdog, when we when we launched that popcorn was pretty predominantly purchased and, and eaten by women um it was not a male um product in terms of who was buying it and our collaboration with Brewdog helped us take Joe and Seth into a more of a male demographic. Um, and, and obviously that was a good number of years ago. And over the years, we've seen that grow and grow. So um, that's the kind of the main reason behind it. How do we go about selecting partners? Um, they've got to really align with what our brand is. And our brand is premium. Um, we love to kind of do things a bit cheekily, a bit differently. Um, you know, we are small and we can take advantage of that nimbleness um uh, uh but fundamentally the finished product has to taste fantastic we're, we're, our journey is all about taste we've won over 70 great taste awards now and um that for us is really what what we're trying to make joe and Seth's. um you know when you eat one of our products we want you to go wow that tastes fantastic and so if the part if the partnership helps us in that aim by giving us a an awesome ingredient or kind of inspiring kind of flavor or, or even a talking point um, that that we really like. 
And now that the film has finally been been released and is in cinemas, are you finding that you've you've seen a considerable uplift in in sales already? Um, how how is how is it working out so far? It's difficult. Often, it, with partnerships, it's really difficult to measure. Um, um, but I would say, of all the partnerships, this one is the one that, um, uh, for a variety of different reasons, um, had, sort of was always going to be fairly predictable. Which was, it was going to be quite successful. I think in terms of what it achieved. Um, and yes, it's performed very, very well. Um, and. Uh, but but for us, it's not just about the sales value that, that comes with it. It's about the brand and mm-hmm. for the royal for, at the premiere of this film at the Royal Albert Hall, the four and a bit thousand people in there, including the royal family and every member of the cast, had a bag of it on their seat right. and were tucking into it during that film. So while they were, you know, and post COVID, everyone is very looking for that kind of that special moment to talk about um, and uh, to be a part of. 5,000 people's kind of special moments uh, at that moment in time and them to be consuming Joe and Seth at that point, I think is incredibly powerful. Um, and and things like that really do help to, to, over the years, have really helped to grow a brand. Absolutely. And of course, there is a natural fit, isn't there, with um, with a film and popcorn yeah. and cinema. And, and you're obviously already very well distributed in, in cinemas as well. Now, I want to move on to to your articles because you've picked yeah. some really interesting uh, industry developments for us to talk about. Before we do that, just give us a sense of what you're like as a reader. What publications do you read regularly and what types of stories are you typically drawn towards? Um, I would say... So- my, I used to read an awful lot more than I do now. Now I kind of distill it all down on a Sunday morning. Um, and there's two reasons for that. One is my work life is incredibly busy. And my second is I have a seven-month-old seven month baby who, um, frankly, any more than 10 minutes of me playing <laughs> with my phone and the phone, he's figured out how to grab it and throw it on the floor. So um, my, my amount of reading I get done these days is unfortunately far less. But my, the two, I would say there's two publications that, that um, are still, uh, I read cover to cover every week, and that would be The Grocer and Times, uh, Times on Sunday and, and Saturday. And I think because, um, yeah, I think in, in our industry, if you're not reading The Grocer, of course, um, you know, you're, there, there's certainly things that you won't be aware of. And, and, uh, and I think it's incredibly important. And um, uh, and from the, the times, the sort of what well, the articles that will kind of catch my eye. I'm always interested in kind of um, brands that are fundraising because um, certain things will kind of come as their next stage. You know, they're going to be out there recruiting. They're going to be launching MPD probably mm-hmm. in six or twelve months. They're going to be spending money on it. It's quite interesting to kind of see that coming. Um, I also think it's really interesting reading about. Um, I find kind of the interviews with with some of the leaders really interesting. I think it's really it's always something you can take from how other people are doing things that you can then um, put in place with in your own business. And um, uh, that I always will kind of tend to read these articles and send an email to myself with kind of two or three thoughts that, that I need to change or think about. 
Oh, that's very well organized. I'm, 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 anyway, I'm impressed. Anyway, I remember anything. <laughs> Lots of emails from myself. That's all I do. <laughs> it's, as long as there's a system, I think that's what matters. And there's, of course, there's no shortage of uh, sort of industry issues uh, to, to talk about at the moment as well. It's obviously an incredibly um, busy time for, for everyone, but for the industry in particular. What you have picked as our first article to talk about is from The Drum, and it's about Christmas shopping trends. The yes. headline is Christmas shoppers start earlier but half don't think we'll have a normal celebration. And just to give a little bit of context for listeners, so this is an article reporting on a survey by eBay. It's from a little while ago, but touches on trends that I think have been recurring really um, for uh, over the past few few weeks and months. Lots of very familiar themes that, that we're talking about. Um, so shoppers starting to stock up earlier than usual. We've had quite a lot of uh, retailers talk about how things like frozen turkey crowns, I think, at Aldi last week um, already uh, up much, much more than, than they would have been normally at this time of year. And from this survey, 41% of shoppers are expecting to be fully prepped for Christmas, even before December, which makes me feel slightly panicky. I'm definitely not in that 41%. Um, but there is also still quite a bit of uncertainty and anxiety around what exactly Christmas will look like, which is what that headline refers to, with just 50% believing a traditional Christmas will be possible this year. Adam, you mentioned earlier gifting is a really important part of, of, of your range, of your business. You do limited edition flavors, special flavors for Christmas as well. Just give us a sense of how important Christmas is to the business in the grand scheme of things. And therefore, what are your expectations around how shoppers are going to behave this year? Um, yeah, I think this article is really interesting because... But to answer your question, Christmas is a is a, an important part of our selling season. We're we're very strong in gifting and uh, at Christmas. But in addition, from a brand perspective, um, it's one of our biggest opportunities as a brand to get Joe and Seths into lots of people's homes who wouldn't necessarily buy a bag of popcorn day in day out. Um, it's a different occasion, and so it's a great way of getting a, a different consumer trying Joe Seths, and so. It's important on a number of levels. And um, the reason I think this is really interesting is I've, I've, I certainly feel personally that this will be the kind of the biggest Christmas that we've known in certainly in my lifetime. Um, if if all continues to, mm. to stay, play, play out and, and stay positive, because I think people just want to have an event that they can um, plan for, entertain and, and spend money for, frankly. Um, uh and there was a part of this article that said that um, the thirty percent of consumers are planning to up their budgets for presents and partying, and I think this is this links neatly into a lot of what we're seeing, and I think the industry is seeing is that Christmas has been just pulled forward dramatically. I mean, we've we've never de- we've never delivered as much stock as early as we have for Christmas um, as we have this year, and um, we've also found that people are spending where consumers are spending with us they're spending much more than they, they would have done as well previously so the, the two trends of it kind of it, it it looking like it's going to be a big christmas and people planning earlier and spending more is definitely um we're seeing coming through and and that's starting to play out we're seeing with kind of shortages everywhere and uh and lots of kind of su- supply chain challenges what i think is really interesting as well though is from a 
um, kind of from an occasion perspective, I do think uh, indulgence is going to be huge at Christmas. And so from a brand, you know, we are uh, uh, an indulgent brand. Um, we are kind of, we're going to talk about other other forms of indulgence, but we are an indulgent brand, and and um, so for us, we it's it's definitely going to play into play well for us, I think, this Christmas. And I like what you were saying there um, around shoppers um, really planning early and, and stocking early, and and the impact that that's had on on your own sales already. As you said, in some instances, that early planning is motivated to an extent by concerns around availability and a sense of, well, I better you know sort this out now before everyone else has bought every, bought all the popcorn. Um, has that created availability issues or issues with sort of ingredients, packaging, any kind of supply chain problems for you? Or have you been able to to manage um, those changes? We're, we're in a, we're, we're in a, we're, I guess we are um, the old swan analogy at the moment. Um, everything looks pretty great. We're delivering, um, we're delivering almost on time to all of our customers and in full. Um, but underneath, it has been very, very challenging the last few months in particular with supply chain. Mm. From a supply chain perspective, deliveries, packaging delays, costs, everything's going up in price. Everything's taking longer to, to source. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, suppliers who, who historically would have been, you know, you wouldn't even have to chase them for a delivery. You, you're really having to... to to check to make sure they're going to deliver for you and and, and not give that capacity to someone else um so it has it has been very very challenging i'm really proud that we are in the place that we are and, and kind of doing record numbers um but but it is underneath it is it has been very tough yeah, yeah and i think yeah. that's and i think that's common across the industry at the moment um certainly every every meeting i have everyone is sort of putting their hair out a little bit and uh ha- and has some challenge or the other yeah, and, and certainly I think pretty much any food and drink brand uh, I've had on the podcast that I've spoken to recently, I think would, would echo that as well. What's the biggest headache for you at the moment when it comes to those supply chain issues? What's really either gone up in cost or what's become really difficult to source? Um, the going up in cost containers, uh, so, so for our export business, has gone up dramatically. And the you know, the, the time if i'm sending a container to america you know it used to take not the time on the on the sea but the time at the other end it used to get offloaded straight away and, and off it goes and now you're getting hit with um demerge charges at the other end where you've got to pay even though it's not your fault that it's mm. taken so long to get it off the ship which is crazy uh the concept i can't get my head around at all um and then you can't get lorries to kind of take it so the, the whole um the whole kind of uh logistics um in particular sea freight air freight costs are, are unbelievable um and there are kind of specific shortages um around kind of packaging or um and you know price increases on every, every you know price increases on everything really mm. um but uh and i think this is the biggest challenge that i think smes are going to have at the moment is is what do you do with your pricing um it's only so long that we can absorb these sorts of slightly scary price increases um and uh but like every sme we don't want to pass on those increases because we want to be growing our brand growing our distribution not um uh, risking that at all so 
no doubt that's a challenge that all of us and, and uh, all of us as a, as a kind of group of smaller brands are, are debating. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's arguably a little bit easier, isn't it, if you are a premium brand where, you know, consumer sort of price sensitivity is possibly a little bit yeah. different to, um, you know, an, an everyday essential. If you're on that round one pound price point, you, exactly. know, you can't go to one pound five. Um, yeah. but, but, um, but still, people, people, you know, pay attention to prices. Of course, they it would it would have an impact. Have you found that retail buyers are relatively supportive? in in those conversations or is it tough to even start talking about that the only learning i'm having this year is there's far fewer um what you're going to do to reduce your price conversations Mm. um i I think everyone (laughs) probably buyers have had it have, have had enough of trying to have those conversations i could be wrong but um certainly they've they've been far less common this year um because i think the reality is there's no you know, there's nowhere really to go in that, in that direction um so I, and I, I think um as a whole i think people are fairly receptive to it because they're starting to see it in their own you know petrol costs of record highs i think um and um you know christmas a lot of christmas products are going up in price um so but i think those conversations you'll you'll yeah we'll know the answer probably over the next few months when when they've come to a conclusion in some shape or form yeah certainly the fact that it's happening across the industry essentially i think Mm. helps matters it's not like it's individual brands or categories trying to push that um let me take you on to the next article which i think it keeps us in in fairly sort of high profile issues um this is some research from mintel um and I think it's quite interesting just how much consumer research actually is getting published at the moment. I really, it really feels like there's yeah. a real need, isn't there, to stay very close to what's happening with with consumer needs um, as as we come out of COVID. But this is a piece from uh, Mintel. It's focused on the US actually, but it touches on lots of trends that I think are just as relevant in the UK yeah. context. And um, so it looks at snacking and the rise of permissible indulgence in particular. You already touched on this. You guys are an indulgent brand. We're having a lot of discussion about health at the moment. Um, yeah. So I was very interested to see how you are approaching that whole topic. But again, for listeners, this Mintel research essentially looked at how consumers are trying to square, on the one hand, growing interest in health, a greater desire to be healthier and choose healthier options, and also at the same time wanting snacks in particular that are indulgent and that taste great and what they found was uh, 78% of consumers believe snacking can be part of a healthy diet 69% want snacks that balance health and taste Um, and they're also looking at essentially as those snacking occasions broaden as well um, that consumers are often torn between wanting that indulgence and also wanting to make healthier choices Um, especially I think in the wake of COVID you know health obesity these are all issues that we're talking about quite a lot how do you approach that as an indulgent brand and where do you think you can fit in with consumers that are torn between those two instincts wanting indulgence but also wanting a better for you choice yeah i think it's really interesting there's something we've debated um a lot over the years is um what actually you know should should you kind of 
um, try and make even you know, lower calorie, lower fat, lower type kind of products? Or actually, are we, you know, if our core message is about taste, which it is, um, we're not willing to compromise on that at all. Um, and so it means using the best ingredients, sometimes the most indulgent to make the best tasting products. Now, all that being said, our, our calorie, because we don't use oil to pop our popcorn, we use air and variety of other things, means actually the calories are pretty good. Um, but as a brand, it's for me, it's really important that we um, focus on the fact that portion control and servings is a way to control um, the level in which you indulge with Jones Nest, as opposed to compromising the product to create something that isn't as as fantastic as kind of what it is now. Um, and I think permissible indulgence is a really interesting uh, kind of phrase because it because it is uh, it's kind of it's it's something that you consider you yourself is allowable. Um, and for me personally, you know, everyone has their own view. I think as to what that might look like. For me, that means cleaner ingredients um and 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 kind of doing everything with some level of control as opposed to um kind of eating huge amounts of products where you can't really pronounce the the ingredients and that's and therefore that's what i think a lot of what we do and what, what we've what we see within joe and seth is very much that it's about you know we do resealable on our sharing sharing size packs are resealable allowing people to to um to come back and have more later on and also the ingredients are kind of all things that you should know and I or certainly within in a lot of people's kitchen cupboards so um and and that's been for us the kind of the the the, the focus and I and I don't see it changing even with the onset of HFSS mm-hmm. um which is obviously coming thick and fast um uh there is a need for kind of um more that 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 won't change our strategy. HFSS really, from a brand perspective, is going to stop a lot of brands promoting uh, on kind of gondola ends. Mm-hmm. And um, as a smaller brand, I don't have the budget to spend the money to promote on gondola end. And um, and so, really, in the last eleven years, we've always driven the consumer down the aisle to look at our fixture on the shelf and and buy because they like the look of the product and it's and it's appealing to them. And so. If anything, HFSS should mean that more people are driven down the aisle to look for premium indulgent products, not less. And um, if anything, hopefully our, our sales will improve as part of that. Um, that's how I'm currently yeah, rationalizing I'm... HFS, HFSS <laughs> in my head anyway. But I'm sorry, I've taken you totally off permissive indulgence. No, 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 HFSS. but it's it's absolutely relevant. And I was really keen to ask you about HFSS. So I'm 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 very glad that you've you've brought us onto that already. And I think your point about um being a smaller brand, not really going for that secondary space in the first place, I think is is well made. Do you think though that there will be an impact in terms of what retail buyers are looking for, because there's obviously a lot of pressure to make ranges healthier and to prioritize healthier choices, healthy NPD. What's your sense on how that's going to affect your chances of growing the brand and getting more listings? Definitely. I think, um, yeah, if I I was a supermarket buyer now and having conversations with them, with various uh, buyers over the last few weeks, there is a, a kind of rush to, hfss products that they can put on 
um, promotion, promotion ends and, and various things like that. And so um, that combined with um, availability challenges and supply chain challenges um, is putting pressure on MPD and smaller brands who don't fit that, that, that requirement because they're looking to, you know, put as much products on a shelf as possible with the brands that you know are going to sell and are, and are going to fit those requirements. So there is, a, yes, I definitely agree that in the short term, there is going to be kind of a slightly, um, I think it's going to be a bit of a panic to, to buy the right products to fit, to fill the space that's needed. If indeed it launches, uh, uh, this kind of comes in as, as planned next year. But um, I think longer term or medium term anyway, the the concept of having premium brands that don't need to be promoted, multi-buy promoted, don't need to be gone to the end and that offer kind of different points of difference in aisle, I think will be a um will be a will be a real growth area for buyers because actually there's only so much there's only so many consumers who will want to buy those kind of healthier products. And um and so where are all the consumers who who don't want to? Uh, going, going to go in so yeah I, th- I think it's been very interesting to see mm. how it plays out because every per- every person I sort of will speak to and we'll have a bit of discussion on of, uh, we're all kind of slight there's a, a real unknown um, of, of where it lands but the kind of logic to me says that um, there has to be a role in supermarkets for smaller brands and challenger brands um, maybe the place for those often might become more HFSS because they're going to be much more nimble to, to be able to create those sorts of products and don't have a legacy of brands, that, of products that they can't make HFSS compliant. But I think where there are premium brands who are, are challenger brands, that the, the logic says that there needs to be that, that point of difference in aisle as well. Um, so yeah, I, I, and certainly so far the conversations have been quite positive in that way. But who knows how the next twelve months goes? I think there's a there's a lot that hasn't quite played out yet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the only thing I would add in in terms of what you're saying about the role of challenger brands, I suppose there's also still going to be a role for brands that are just very clear that they are an indulgent choice. Yeah. I think p- consumers are not confused that they are that they're buying a treat um, when when they're buying you know a, a, one of your products yeah. i think that's that's also part of it isn't it that you're yeah. you're not suggesting that it's something it isn't i totally agree and i think it what's going to be very interesting is um in aisle front of packs have start had had started to become quite uh, in confectioning and chris snacks nuts in particular had become quite calorie focused and lots of healthier messages i wonder to what extent um brands will drop those messages um because actually it becomes a bit uh, and, and it becomes much more of a split between you go for your healthy stuff there and you go mm. for your more indulgent stuff here and actually if you're trying to i always believe if you're somewhere stuck between the two um you're never going to succeed so those brands that kind of try and do both on the front of the pack i think they um, might struggle a bit more um, yeah it's going to but it's a it's a very interesting um another it's another period of change on top of all the other changes the last few years i think it's gonna be very interesting to see how it plays out Um, yeah it's gonna keep i think everyone very busy and i think the only other thing i would say is that the one thing that covid has done for joe and seth's and and a lot of smaller brands it's been a huge um focus on d2c again Um, Mm. and so we have we have over the course of um sort of 12 to 18 months we've 
reached three and a half, uh, 350,000 consumers, individual consumers have had a package of Jonesefs through the post, which is a huge, for a brand like us, is a huge mm. number of consumers. And um, we are able to reach all of those different consumers with our messaging now. And so when we do launch into supermarkets or into a new retailer, we're far more able to succeed and talk about our messaging in a lot more detail because we've got those, those details. One of the biggest challenges of... Uh, of HFSS is is going to be the, the the lack of ability to talk about your brand, your story, and your product in oil. Um, and so, anything that brands can do to reach consumers, to get them into store, into that aisle, to to buy the products on the shelf, I think is going to be a huge a huge part of it, and will make the rate of sale much more realistic and, and achievable. Absolutely, it'll, it'll stay very, very interesting. I think if we you have can tell I'm Mr. Positive, though, Julia, I'm, I'm <laughs> positive. But you have, I mean, you you have to be though, right? Because you know, I, you you need to kind of obviously respond to what's happening in the market. And you you guys yeah. have done NPD. I mean, you've got a sort of popcorn bars as well, haven't yeah. you? That are much more, you know, that are calorie controlled Correct. and yeah. um, I think 140 calories, if I remember correctly. You yeah. know, so th- th- there are obviously things that that you can do to kind of respond to some of that but ultimately you need to believe in your brand and you need to believe in what it stands for and that there is a a way to to tell its story still yeah i think so and um and the the kind of the fundamentals of your brand i think joe and seth's to one side the fundamentals are if you produce a great tasting product that people you know love to eat there's always a place for it somewhere um it's just going to be about adapting and changing and, and reformatting or, or reformatting the size shape or a price point to be able to succeed absolutely now speaking of adapting changing and reformatting uh, we're going to talk about yet another big piece of change but this time on the retail side so we're going to talk a bit about retail tech and tesco's new checkout free store you've picked an article from the grocer the headline is tesco's get go checkout free shopping experience it's one of those really nice picture-led articles where you actually get to see what the shop looks like or the inside was very um very helpful and um, this again just for context is tesco's first checkout free store that's open to the public it's called get go it's in holborn in london and the way essentially it works is uh, customers check in via the tesco.com app at the entrance they pick up whichever products they want their movements and product choices are tracked through cameras and on shelf weight sensors and then the payment is done through the app afterwards no need to queue no need to check out no need to scan anything why did this story catch your attention adam and what do you think the implications of this checkout free tech uh, ultimately for brands like yours um why did it catch my attention um i love tech um and i love tech in fmcg it's 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 it makes it i think anything that it changes the experience makes the experience a bit different and interesting i think I, I love that kind of stuff um and why i particularly love this one is um is that tesco are having a go um because suddenly it takes it from um uh, Amazon, who we know are leading in a number of areas, but you, d- you never really know whether Amazon are going to, uh, this is just a sort of pilot or you know, something, something. You never know how serious um, it could be for the industry, I think, until one of the, the, the bigger the bigger guys and the legacy players kind of has a go. And so the fact Tesco doing it is, is really cool. It's really exciting. Um, and um, 
what I love about what what I did do actually on this article was I then did a did a bit of a search on Twitter because uh, Twitter is always always a good one to have a look at to see what what people are saying about it, um, and I particularly found I, th- I thought what was quite interesting was it doesn't sound particularly frictionless. Um, it sounds quite difficult to to um, get onto the app and kind of get your details set up and get started, but once you're in, it sounds like a, a pretty fun experience. Um, and uh but i think what's really interesting about it uh, and so yeah i think it's i think as a concept it's really exciting and uh, and as a and personally i can't stand those machine those self-service machines <laughs> that always insist on having an error whenever i decide to use them um so anything that that moves us away from those is is a positive development in my eyes um but what i think is particularly interesting about these stores is the what it will mean for the for the shopping experience because my understanding the way they work is you have to follow a set path um so that the, the uh, so that the, the scanners can kind of pick you up and, and you can't backtrack i believe um and therefore in terms of where the way things are laid out um uh you're actually as a consumer having to follow a, a bit of a journey um which through through the store to be able to get what you want and i think so from my perspective as a smaller brand in theory, that means that I'm going to get a lot more people going down the aisle where my product is displayed um, and a lot more people, uh, hopefully, uh, experiencing it and, and getting the opportunity to try it and buy it. Uh, and we are actually stocked in the Amazon um, uh, stores. So it's it's quite exciting. But I've got no data. I've got yeah, no visibility. I was just about to ask you, has it has it worked so far? Absolutely no visibility <laughs> at all to be able to give you anything insightful. Um, but what I'm interested in is, yeah, so first of all, I think that the journey will make it very interesting. But the second thing I think is really interesting is if, if I am a consumer who can't stand those machines, will it mean that people increase their average basket size and spend more and try more things because actually they don't have the hassle of dealing with these these checkouts at the end um uh and i, and I don't know the answer but i think it's really interesting and what it's going to do to the industry if it does take off not only in terms of kind of what start what kind of the, the levels of staffing needed in terms of restocking the shelves i believe is a lot more complex um and it has to be done in a certain sort of methodical way but i just love the fact that that actually the the retail store experience is going to evolve and we've seen kind of the bigger format stores struggling a bit more and need to fill their space with other restaurants and things over the years and now actually we're going to end up with a load of load of smaller format stores that, that do things a bit differently I like what you were saying there about managing the shopper journey. I think that's a really interesting point. It's sort of like it's what for IKEA hasn't it in mm. kind of funneling people through mm. a particular journey. Do you think though that if people don't have to check out the whole experience becomes faster more efficient that actually the amount of time people get to spend making choices will reduce as well because they're in that sort of super efficient I'm just getting this done mode Mm, yeah I I think that's a fair point and I think I mean it also becomes very soulless and uh um and the sort of ability of of interacting with people kind of giving tasters or whatever it might be becomes all a bit more challenging um so yeah i do think there'll be less uh, you're right there probably would be less dwell time um but then i think there's ultimately these stores are probably designed for kind of currently designed for very high footfall kind of lunch location it's a tesco express isn't it yeah where people are in a hurry they want to go back to work very quickly 
you know, it's, we've done sampling in tube uh, in tube stations and train mainline train stations, and it's it's impossible because people are going from A to B and not and not wanting to stop. I don't, it, what would be very interesting is if there was this was just a a version of this was in a lot much larger format store where personally speaking i'll still go and dwell and and explore because i quite like that as an experience um but anything that can make that experience a bit more interesting is is uh, is exciting yeah and i suppose what it could just be one way of actually driving further polarization in terms of the kind of shopping experiences that we're looking at so the super efficient you know tesco express sainsbury's local you just want to you know mm get something done and, and have it be as frictionless as possible. And then at the other end of the spectrum, um, something that's much more about in-store theatre and yeah. really maximises a dwell time. And it's probably the stuff in the middle that, that's going to be a little bit harder to make work potentially in future. Yeah, and I think it, you know, the, the only other thing I'd say is if you look at the cinema industry, who for years have had have been under have been under threat from kind of changes in in viewing habits and and you know and if you, if you, you use that analogy with supermarkets in terms of you know Amazon deliveries and people free delivery all this sort of stuff cinemas have totally reinvented themselves to this you know 4DX they do massive screens all about the customer experience that is what is that is the number one aim for a cinema right now they know they're going to get you through the door if they can offer you an amazing experience and a great film um and actually, supermarkets, it hasn't really, it's evolved, like you say, but it hasn't really had to jumpstart. It hasn't really been under threat as a, as a kind of, I don't think, as a, uh, as a format. And so this is a, it's quite exciting because it starts, to, and maybe this isn't the final answer, maybe this isn't the right answer, but it starts to, to um, throw some interesting, interesting ideas and some, some smart people at a problem or, or at an opportunity that could, that could be really cool. Absolutely. Adam? We're out of time, but if listeners want to connect with you, want to learn more about the brand, where can they find you? Um, as a brand, we are on all the usual social media channels at Joe and Seth, J-O-E-A-N-D-S-E-P-H. And personally, I'm on LinkedIn uh, is, is my uh, is my go to. So, um, yeah, please make sure you try some some Joe and Seth for Christmas this year. You will you will enjoy indulging permissibly. Um and <laughs> that's even English. Um and uh, uh uh yeah and I hope you've uh, and I hope everyone's had the opportunity to come across us over the years. Brilliant. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show and thanks for a great conversation. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.